Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, good morning, church. Let's take out our Bibles today. And uh, let's open up to the book of Psalms. Psalm 9 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. I know I've been telling you that after the book of Jonah, we're going to get into uh, the book of Galatians together for a long period of time, and we are definitely going to do that. Uh, But um, because I got sick, my kind of schedule got thrown off a little bit, and so I didn't want to start Galatians this week because Next Sunday morning, I'm going to be in Colorado speaking at a ministry conference uh, for that weekend. And so I didn't want to start Galatians and have one session and then be gone the following week. So I thought what I'd do is pick up where we left off in the Psalms this last summer. We went through Psalm 8 together, 1 through 8 together as a church for two months this summer, myself and various pastors covering those teachings. And uh, today we're going to cover Psalm 9, so our next study. And this psalm is actually interesting because it's written in a Hebrew acrostic, though we wouldn't know it because we're reading it in English. But that means that each phrase or stanza begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And it gets about halfway through the Hebrew alphabet before then in chapter 10 or Psalm 10, giving us the second half of the alphabet. So next week, Pastor Manny is going to teach Psalm 10 and kind of put Psalm 9 and 10 together for us uh, as a church. So be ready for the props next Sunday. You know Manny and his style. Uh, But today we're going to be in Psalm uh, 9, Psalm 9, and uh, let's just read the whole thing together and, and then we'll pray and fixate on a few portions of it. It says to the choir master, according to Muth Laban, which we don't know precisely what it means. There's lots of theories there, but a Psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O most high. Verse three, when my enemies turn back, They stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord, verse seven, sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord, verse nine, is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations, verse 15, have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the works of their own hands. Higion and Selah, these are 
also two um, musical notations. We don't really know exactly what Higion means, but Selah means to pause over the music. The wicked shall return to Sheol, verse 17, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for this powerful prayer. Thank you for this man who stood confident and convinced in your past faithfulness and your future faithfulness. And uh, Lord, we pray that we also would, like David, the original prayer of this song, that we would also be people who make a strong commitment to live a life of praise to you because of who you are, who you will be in the future, and your great faithfulness to us. So we thank you, Lord, and we pray that you'd minister to us from this powerful prayer and song today. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Okay, what, what this psalm depicts is, a, is an overcomer. You might have heard that word in the Bible. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus writes to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and he talks about those who overcome. This song is describing an overcoming person. Uh, throughout the passage or the prayer, we discover that they've overcome enemies that have come into their lives. They've overcome afflictions of various sorts and even traps and snares that the enemy has set for them. They have overcome. Uh, if this song were written today on this side of the cross, if this song were written in our New Testament, New Covenant Jesus era, rather than the Old Testament, Old Covenant Israelite era, uh, this song would depict a person who confidently stands against the forces of darkness that seek to entrap them, or who stands against a societal world system that seeks to engulf them, swallow them up, or who stands even against their own mortal bodies and desires that seek to enslave them. This person is victorious. This person is an overcomer. And the major element of this overcoming life in this prayer or in this song is that this person, and we're talking about David here, this person has made a strong commitment to praise. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. He made a strong commitment to praise. Uh, in some psalms, the way that they go is that the psalmist is you, you, kind of at the beginning of the psalm or even in the middle of the song or even all the way to the end of the song is kind of freaking out. Uh, in many psalms, there's panic, there's worry, there's concern. Uh, in many psalms, the theology is terrible because their eyes are not yet fully upon the Lord. And then at the end, there's sometimes a strong word of conviction and truth, and I've arrived in the right place. Some Psalms don't even ever get there, showing us that God is okay with it, even if we have to have those kinds of prayers for a moment. But some Psalms begin with the word of confidence. Some Psalms start out in the right place and then proceed to tell you through the prayer why they were able to be in that right place, and that's what this Psalm is like. Look at verse one and two again with me. David said, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. 
I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. This is the right place to be. And then David, about halfway through the song, knowing that this is the best place to be, invites all of us, anyone else who would ever read or pray or think about this song, he invites us to behave the same way. In verse 11, he said, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. All right, so this Singer, this author, David, he has a strong commitment to a life of praise. And I wanna talk to you about that commitment this morning, but not before first asking the question, why was David so committed to praising God? Why was this so important to this man? Well, briefly, this song gives us two major reasons why David committed to a life of praise. The first major reason is that David found God to be praiseworthy. That's really what the first half of the song covers. In other words, as David looked back on his life, he saw the incredible faithfulness of God in his life, especially in two specific areas. One of them can be depicted in the little phrase in verse nine and 10. Look at it in your Bibles. He said that God is praiseworthy because he is our stronghold in times of trouble. Uh, David was very familiar with being in times of trouble. Uh, he was not just saying this kind of thing, but, but lived uh, a, a very simple, clean kind of life. No, he was experienced with having enemies of all sorts, from outside of Israel, from inside of Israel, and from even inside his own family. David experienced threats, even threats unto death. And he, as he had to flee for his life time and time again into the wilderness or into clusters of rocks or into the caves themselves, what David discovered is that God was his protector. The fields weren't protecting him. The anonymity of the forests weren't protecting him. The rocks and the caves weren't protecting him, but God was protecting him. It's like David was saying, God, I was in a fortress in Jerusalem but now I've been banished from the fortress time and time again, and I'm safer here because you are my stronghold. So the Lord had convinced David of his previous faithfulness, and David recounts that in so many ways. In verse three, he said, God turned back my enemies. In verse three, he said, they didn't stand a chance in God's presence, so they stumbled and perished. Uh, in verse five and six, he alludes to foes like Saul and Goliath and even nations like the Edomites who tried to rise up against him, but to no avail because God was victorious on his behalf. So one of the praiseworthy features of God to David was that God was a stronghold in times of trouble. But another level of God's faithfulness that David sings about in this song is that David articulates that God is a righteous judge. Over and over again, he talks about how God is enthroned. He's still on the throne. He's the righteous judge. In David's mind, no one can knock God off of his throne. David compares his enemies and the nations that warred against God to God himself and said, even the memory of these nations is long forgotten, but God is enthroned forever as the righteous judge. 
David was confident, in other words, because he'd seen God faithfully judge in the past. This is a major component of this song. You know, confessing, believing that God knows best, that God is the righteous judge, and that he will handle things as he sees fit. Uh, during one of my uh, recent trips, when I was uh, back in New Jersey, um, we had a little uh, break in the action, and uh, the, the friend that I brought, we, we said, hey, let's go grab lunch together. So uh, we were on Long Beach Island in, in New Jersey, and so he looked up a few places and found one that was, I think, on some TV shows or something like that. And so he's like, let's go to this place. And so I think it was called the Chicken and the Egg or something like that. And so we, we go to this place. I got waffles with fried chicken on top with gravy on top of that with some fried eggs on top of that. So it was quite a meal. But we were just enjoying ourselves, and, and I shared with them, I said, one of my favorite things to do at, at places like this, one of, one of the things our family does, actually, when we're going to places that are really popular, is we like to get online, and we like to read the one-star reviews that people leave on these places, because they're so popular, they're so good, but there are crazy people out there. So let's see what they have to say. So we got online, and we started reading some of the one-star reviews, and one of them was like two weeks old, so it was fresh. And uh, in the scathing review, uh, there was an altercation with a waiter, and the waiter was named in the review. So about that time, they brought our waters out to us, and I asked the guy who brought our water, I'm like, hey, is, uh, is so-and-so working today? I said, I I'm greatly entertained by this review, and I'm just curious if he's around. He's like, oh, you read that review? I'm like, yeah, so within... 20 seconds, our waiter came out. It wasn't the waiter that was named, and he said, so you, so you read that review, huh? And we're like, yeah, and he gets down on our table, and he's like, let me tell you what really happened. <laughs> and he proceeds to tell us a story that is like so crazy about what this woman had done in this restaurant to get herself kicked out, and we're just like, what? I, would people do that? I mean, it was just over the top. Then after he finished telling the story, the waiter that was named comes over to our table. So we got three wait staff just hanging out with us at this point. And he says, so you read the review? And he tells us his version. And what I noticed was that she had her version, super extreme. He, our waiter had his version, which was extreme in the opposite direction. And then our waiter, he had this version that was kind of right in the middle. It wasn't as gnarly as the waiter said, and it wasn't as what she had said either. And we were all just cracking up. But I, but I walked out of that restaurant and I thought to myself, what's the true story? What really happened? And if three human beings can't even see a simple restaurant altercation clearly, then who do we think we are trying to operate as the judge of the universe? God. He's the one who has to judge all that is right and wrong. And David was confident about that with the Lord. Only God can successfully judge. So David looked back at God. He said, God, you're praiseworthy. But the second reason that David praised the Lord or committed to this life of praise is because he felt that God was trustworthy. Uh, the word praiseworthy looks backwards. The word trustworthy looks forward. In the second half of the song, right about verse 13, David pivots and he starts basically 
in words of faith saying, this is what's gonna happen in the future. This is what God is gonna do. God's gonna settle the score. No evil is gonna be, uh, uh, you know, avoid judgment. God will deal with all of it. But the reason that he's saying God is trustworthy for that is because he looked back and he said, God has been trustworthy. God is praiseworthy for what he has done in the past. And David recognized the same kind of things that he saw in the praiseworthiness of God. He saw that God, or believed that God would rescue his people in the future. In verse 13, he asked for God's grace and for God to see the affliction that came from the hand of his enemies. He believed in verse 13 and 14 that God would lift him from the very gates of death itself and that David would praise God with God's people after God saved all of them. In verse 18, David realized that God could not even forget people who are needy and that the poor in verse 18 would not perish forever. It kind of reminds us of the perspective of Jesus or the teaching of Jesus when he said in Matthew 5 verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. David had this confidence that poverty of spirit is going to lead to great blessing from God. But David also recognized that God would judge all wickedness. Evil had not escaped God's sight. David knew that from looking back. And so he believed that God would deal with it in the future. He said that God in verse 15 would sink the nations in the pit that they made to try to trap others. That he would catch them in the net that they hid to defeat God's people. There would be, in other words, in David's mind, a day is coming when there will be this incredible cosmic reversal where God will overturn the successes of evil and vanquish them forever. Just like Joseph ascended to Pharaoh's right hand after his brothers sold him into slavery, or Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, became part of God's plan, or when Haman in the book of Esther was hung in the very gallows that he built to murder wrongfully a man named Mordecai. So God one day would instigate, in David's mind, he knew God will instigate a great reversal. The weak will be strong, the poor will be rich, the blind will see, God will make all things right. On that day, David prayed and he knew that it would happen. The nations will know that they are only men. That day is coming, David was confident. So David here is able to then say, because I know of God's praiseworthiness, because I know of God's trustworthiness, I will praise him. Now, if David was able to look and observe uh, the praiseworthiness and trustworthiness of God back then, we as Christians, or we on this side of the cross, we have a much better vantage point than he ever did to see the praiseworthiness and the trustworthiness of God, don't you think? I mean, David was in faith looking forward to the cross but could not see it clearly, but we are able to look backwards and see the realities of the cross, the full expression of who God is revealed to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. It should stir us and fill us with a great confidence in his future trustworthiness. So David commits, I will praise God. What I wanna do for the rest of our time is I want to consider what did his commitment to praise look like? I mean, this is, if this is what it means to be a successful human being, 
to be connected to God, to be praising God. How did David commit to a life of praise before God? What, what did it look like? So I wanna show you five things as we wrap up our time together today. Number one, David said that he would give thanks to the Lord in verse one. Verse one, he said, I will give thanks to the Lord. How do you praise God? Number one, you give thanks to the Lord. A praise is a big word, and inside of that big word is thanksgiving. That's part of praising God. And thanksgiving is a very important aspect to our worship of the Lord. Now, there was a recent article that was put out by Harvard University's health department uh, where what they did is they recounted all these different studies. I'm sure you've read some of these over the years that have demonstrated the physical and mental benefits <clears throat> of being regularly thankful. Uh, in one study, uh, they took a group of people and they said, okay, every week at the end of the week, we want you to write down things that happened in the previous week that you're thankful uh, for, that you're thankful that occurred. Uh, then they took a second group and they said, at the end of your week, what we want you to do are write down things that you're upset about and that you really don't like are happening or that you're unthankful for. And then with a third group, they said, we, we don't really want you to write either of those. We just want you to kind of give a little recap of the events of your last week. And after 10 weeks, they discovered that the gratitude group was, quote, more optimistic and felt better about their lives. They also exercised more and had fewer visits to physicians than those who focused on sources of aggravation. Interesting. In another study, a psychologist from Penn uh, tried various interventions to increase people's happiness. I think he had a group of about 450 volunteers for a number of months. And uh, every week they would try a new intervention and of everything his department tried, the greatest impact on personal happiness came the week that he tasked them with writing and personally delivering a letter of gratitude to someone in their lives that they had never properly thanked. This is the way that we're made. You see, God made Adam and Eve. He created them. They were meant to, for the rest of their lives, say, thank you for what you have given us. You have given us life. They were meant to see themselves as recipients. The pride of life is the thing that makes us think that we haven't received anything and that we've earned it all. But instead, by God's grace, we're to recognize, no, I have received. Even that which I've earned, I was able to earn because God enabled me to earn it and put that desire within my life and heart. Well, the Bible invites us into this life of thankfulness to God. Paul in Philippians 4 verse 6 told us not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let our requests be made known to God. He also spoke in Ephesians 5 verse 20 of the blessing of giving thanks always and for everything, he said to God. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 and 18, he said we should rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances. And in Psalm 69, verse 30, we're invited to magnify God with thanksgiving. Think about that. God, the biggest being there is, 
can be magnified through our thanksgiving. It's not that he gets any bigger as a result of your thanksgiving, it's that he gets bigger to you as a result of your thanksgiving. So the first thing, we need to commit to praising him with thanks. But number two, I wanna say, we need to then commit to praising him with the whole heart, with the whole heart. Look at what David said in verse one. He said that he would give this thanks with his whole heart. In other words, David refused to worship a holy, majestic, transcendent, and glorious God with half-hearted, limp praise. He just wouldn't do it. He committed his whole body, his whole soul, all of his energy into the act of worship. Now, like I've been saying, David was a man who faced lots of conflict in his life. David faced lots of obstacles in his life. You know, for, for as hard as your, your life might have been, I mean, I know for me, I've never been at a family dinner and had an in-law pick up multiple spears and try to kill me in the middle of dinner. I mean, he lived a very Jerry Springer kind of experience. In, in other words, what I mean is that there were a lot of things that happened in David's life or were happening in David's life that could consume his heart, parts of his heart. So it was very important for him when he praised God to praise God with his whole heart because if he didn't, then parts of his heart would be focused on things that would distract and detract from him in his worship of God. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is that when David worshiped God, although it had therapeutic benefit, it was not primarily for therapeutic benefit. You would not catch David saying things like, oh man, Sunday morning's coming, I gotta go get my worship on so I can get like a buzz, you know, and I can feel good for a little bit. I get so inspired. No, David, when he worshiped God with his whole heart, it wasn't for therapy, but it was for transfer. He was transferring his concerns and worries and pains and difficulties to the throne room of the living God. His whole heart went into God's direction. He was committed to this level of praise. And I think it's noteworthy that this was a decision that David made. I love this. Because I think we often think, I mean, he's saying, he's saying, I will do this. This is my commitment. And I love that because I think we often consider enthusiastic worship something that happens when the timing is right or the environment is right. Or if we're talking about musical worship, when the musicians are right, you know, like they were this morning, you know, kind of thing. We think if we can set the mood correctly, then we can be enthusiastic in our worship. Are we really gonna look God in the eye and say that? God, what I need is for the mood <laughs> to be right. <laughs> That's, if you think about it, not how God designed our corporate worship. You know, in the ancient Israelite days, they would have these feasts and festivals, you know, a few times a year, and the environment would be right. But when Jesus rose from the dead, we took his resurrection day, Sunday, and we just started meeting every single week. God put his seal of approval on that. We gather together and then we disperse 
throughout the week to honor God with our lives. And what I want you to think about is the impossibility of expecting that 52 Sundays out of the year, the mood will be right. It just won't happen. I mean, if you were to invite me to this Friday night, go see one of my favorite bands in concert. Let's say it's like an impossible ticket to get. And we go, I know it'd be an inspiring moment. You know, I, I love good musicianship, you know, and to, to, to see it in action, it'd be inspiring. And then if the next week you said, hey, they're playing again this Friday night and I got tickets, you wanna go? I'd, I'd probably go. I might check my calendar once or twice, you know, but I'd probably go. If you asked me on week three, I, 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 I said, well, you, do you know anybody else? You know, are you just only asking me? But if we went 52 Friday nights in a year, I guarantee you, I would just be like, I can't wait to get out of this concert. <laughs> this is terrible. If that's what would happen with even the best in the world are playing, how could we expect that it's going to be merely through the music or the lighting or the mood that we're going to want to enthusiastically praise the Lord. No, the advantage that our worship team has is they have God. They have God. They have the greatest target of our affections that has ever been. And so for us, we can make a decision. I'm gonna fixate upon those lyrics, I'm gonna make them my own, and I'm going to worship him. I love that. But the third thing I want you to see is that David said that he would recount all of God's wonderful deeds. That's what he says there in verse one. I, I will recount all of God's wonderful deeds. Now that, those words wonderful deeds are uh, two words for us in English, but they're actually just one word in Hebrew. And the word is often used to describe the miraculous. When a miracle happens, they would call it one of God's wonderful deeds. But that's not the only time they would use this Hebrew word. They would also use it to describe daily experiences in their lives that they considered wonderful deeds from God. And then they would also use it to describe beautiful things that they found in the Bible, glorious truths in scripture. So think about it, what is David saying? He's saying, I'm gonna tell people about, and I'm gonna pray to you, God, about the amazing, like miraculous things you've done in my life. But I'm not gonna be just a one-note person either, just talking about that time in 1998 when God did that. Like, I'm gonna have more than that because I'm gonna talk about the everyday stuff that you're doing in my life, the beautiful things that I see you doing. When I see a baby's smile, I'm gonna rejoice over who God is. And then I'm also going to recount the beautiful things that I've discovered in your word. And when they pop out to me, when I see something, I'm gonna celebrate what I see. I think a simple conclusion that anyone who's interacted with the Psalms like we are today should come to is that there is power in recounting God's deeds. There is power in just listing out and praising God for what he has done in your life. I think we need to be more open in our praise of God. It has a massive effect on our lives. Uh, we need to tell ourselves what God has done. I can't tell you how many times 
I've been lifted out of some form of despair because I've just gone through an exercise where I just start recounting to God things that I remember that he has done in faithfulness for me. And the interesting thing is over the years, what I've discovered is that that list gets uh, longer because of time, for one. There's just more history. But also secondarily because of perspective. There are things that God did in my life when I was 21, 22, 23 years old that when I was 25 or 26, I didn't even know to thank God for that. I didn't have that perspective, but as time has passed by, I've realized, God, you were sovereignly doing these things in my life that I, I didn't even know to thank you for. But now with the luxury of time and perspective, I praise you, God, for what you have done. And we can, as we recount God's deeds, a beautiful thing happens in our hearts and we can even lift ourselves from despair. All right, fourth of five. David said that he would praise God with singing uh, there in verse two. And because he knew that singing is really important, he invited all of us to do it with him in verse 11. He encouraged all believers to do the same, to sing. Now, this is another element of praise that the modern medical community has recognized has health benefits. Uh, various studies have pointed to communal singing, not just singing alone in the shower, but communal singing as a way to relieve stress or a way to release endorphins. I mean, I'm sure you've had that experience before. Like, man, this just, what, why, why does this feel good? Or to gain a heightened sense of belonging and connection or even to help process grief. Like, God, I'm singing these things about you and there's this back track to what I'm going through and I, you're helping me process all this right now or even to improve your mood. Uh, one study I read even suggests that singing can help snoring problems <laughs> because it changes, it alters apparently the way that you breathe. It opens up the pathways. So uh, don't look at your spouse right now if you're... <laughs> but when we sing together, beautiful things happen. D Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that when we sing, it's the voice of the church that is heard. It's not I, the individual, who's singing. It's us, it's we who are singing. Connects you afresh with your identity. What's the first word of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray? He said, pray like this, our Father. He didn't say pray my Father, he said our Father. We're immediately supposed to come into contact with the reality that we're part of a bigger community. We're part of something larger. And so here, David says, we need to sing to God together. But the last thing I want to show you about David's commitment is that number five, David said we should praise God by telling others about God's goodness. Um, in verse 11, he said it this way, just in exhortation form. He said, tell among the people his deeds. Tell among the people his deeds. You know, I, I hold the conviction. I hope this would go without saying. Maybe you've observed it. But I hold the conviction that good preaching will ultimately be good praising. And what I mean by that is, of course, I believe that good preaching should lead 
to good praising. In other words, we hear these truths about God and his word and we internally begin to praise God and celebrate God. But I think good preaching goes a level above that and good preaching actually spends time declaring God's praises in the pulpit. This this is who God is, he's amazing, he's beautiful, he's wonderful. Good preaching will be good praising. And David is telling us that we must praise God by proclaiming God or preaching who God is. Of course, not just from pulpits, but to one another through our everyday life and interactions. A few months ago, when my family was up in Lake Tahoe on vacation together, we, uh, one day we were at the beach uh, together and this cute little scene just started unfolding in front of us. You know, all our kids are older now, they're teenagers. And uh, we were flanked though that day on the beach by a couple of families who had little toddlers. Uh, the family to our left, they, it was just a mom and dad and one little boy who we soon, soon learned was four years old. And he was just playing alone by himself. And then on the other side of us was a larger family with older kids, but they had one little four-year-old girl. And it was super cute because uh, just a little bit of time passed before somehow they kind of connected to each other. And right in front of our beach blankets, they spent the next three or four hours just playing together. And uh, they were telling each other all about their lives. And it was a real like one-upsmanship kind of thing, you know? So like my grandma lives 17 hours away. Well, my grandma lives 50 hours away. I mean, my house is this, I mean, they were just doing this whole thing, but they were hanging out. But after about four hours, uh, it was time for them to, to leave. The little girl's parents were calling her away. It's time to go. And I think they realized, maybe one of their parents said something, but they realized that they'd not exchanged names yet. They didn't know each other's names, like little kids do. You know, you're like, did you make a friend? Yeah, it's my best friend. What's their name? I don't know. know? (laughs) That doesn't matter. So the little girl, she goes back, and uh, the boy, I think, was the one whose parents had talked to him, and he says, my name's Xander. And she's, she's like, what, Sander? And he says, no, Xander. And he spells it out, X-A-N-D-E-R. You know, he's four years old, pretty impressive. And uh, she, you know, like I said, they've been one-upping each other all day. So she's like, well, my name's Callie, and I know how to spell my name too. <laughs> and she goes, C. And then there was a super long pause, and he's just looking at her, and then she just ran away. That was it. <laughs> Friendship was over at that point. It was probably just because I miss those days. I miss having kids that age. But I just love that childlike freedom. You know, approaching, playing, enjoying life together with other people. And I wish that we could get better as we interact with each other about more freely sharing the good things that God has done and has been for us, how good God is. For for some reason, I don't know if it's pain for some people or embarrassment for other people or pride for some people or shame for some people, but it seems like a lot of times we're not very open about God's faithfulness in our lives. Perhaps we could become a little bit more like simple children, willing to approach and open up 
about God's good work in our lives. This is, this is what we're meant to be. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. He said, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, okay, this is nice that we're going through Psalm 9. I can't wait to get into Galatians and into the meat of Scripture and everything. And I, and I am too. I'm looking forward to really digging into that glorious book. But what I want to say in closing is that this commitment that David made to regularly and faithfully praise God for, for himself, it is of utmost importance in the life of faith. If you read the Old Testament, what you'll discover is that God's people always struggled with this. God gave them feasts and Sabbaths to help them, designed to keep them in the lane of praise. And they were constantly tempted to neglect this part of their lives. And every time they did, they grew weaker, they grew enslaved, and they lost their power. This is an important part of the life of faith. It's true for us today. The world system, the powers of darkness, our own mortal bodies, they're all pulling at us. They're all preaching to us. They're all wanting to weaken and defeat us. But God is praiseworthy. We know that from the cross. God is trustworthy. We know that from the cross. So we've got to commit to a life of regular, ongoing, faithful praise. So when the songs of worship play, we have to discipline ourselves to grab a hold of the lyrics and sing them in faith to God. When each day begins, we must utter thanksgiving and worship to God for who he is and what he's done. And when, like David in this song, when we see injustices and evils in our world, when they're thrown in our faces, we have to cry out in praise to a God who is on his throne and will not allow it to continue unjudged but we must commit to this life of praise because in it, there is great power because it's what we are designed to be. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.